Well, good morning. I'm going to start out this morning with a question. You don't have to answer it. I did think about having a whole conversation, give and take, this morning, and I've gone for another um, special thing. So this morning, you can just ponder the question. The question is, why is it so hard to talk about our faith with people who don't believe the same thing that we believe? Why is it so hard to share about our faith with people who don't believe the same thing? Well, we live in an era where the church is shrinking across the United States. And there is a fair amount of shame, I think, with the church uh, as a result of this perceived failure to share our faith in a compelling way with people who are not yet believers. Many of us here probably have some amount of guilt for not doing more to encourage faith in the lives of people that we love. So why is it so hard to talk about our faith with people who are not yet believers in Jesus? And is there anything that can make that less daunting? So this is what we're going to reflect a little bit on this morning um, through looking at several different conversion stories in the beginning of John and then also a story that I will read for us in a moment. And as we hear these different stories, I invite you to pay attention to what the people in these stories do and what, the, what happens in these stories that is not a result of any person. All right? What do the people do? What don't they do? So the first story I want to share with us is a Saturday profile in the New York Times from March of 2017 written by Patrick Kingsley. Some of you may be familiar with him. I am not. <clears throat> but I came across this story called The Jihadi Who Turned to Jesus. And this story is about a 25-year-old man named Bashir Muhammad who lived in Istanbul. Maybe he still does. And um, the journalist met him at a prayer gathering in Istanbul. And Mr. Muhammad hosted this gathering. And when he met the journalist, he was wearing a cross around his neck. He guided the prayer time. He provided coffee afterwards. But throughout the course of this prayer gathering, the others in the room multiple times jokingly also referred to their host as a terrorist. Because less than four years prior to that gathering, Muhammad had fought on the front lines of the Syrian civil war for the Nusra Front, which was an offshoot of Al-Qaeda. So he legitimately had been a terrorist, and yet here he was hosting a Christian prayer gathering less than four years later. So Muhammad was introduced to extreme Islam by his cousin when he was 15 years old. And it didn't really go very far at that point. But years later, Muhammad was horrified by the violence that he saw playing out in his nation. And he was drawn back to extremist Islam when a friend invited him to come with him to the front lines to fight with an Islamist terrorist group on the front lines. And Muhammad went. So how did this man come to be the leader of a Christian prayer gathering? Well, eventually, Muhammad became disillusioned. As he was on the front lines, he witnessed all sorts of horrid, horrid atrocities. He says that, I went to Nusra in search of my God, but after I saw Muslims killing Muslims, I realized that there was something wrong, and so he defected. Well, years later, in 2015, his wife became seriously ill. 
And so he called his cousin again, the one who had introduced him originally to extremist Islam. And at this point, his cousin is living in Canada and surprisingly has converted to Christianity. His cousin asks, when he hears that, that his, Muhammad's wife is ill, he asks Muhammad to put the phone up to his wife's ear so that he and his prayer group can pray for Muhammad's wife. Well, Muhammad at this point is desperate as he's watching his wife suffer, and so he puts the phone up to her ear. Muhammad's group prays for her, and shortly after, she begins to recover. Well, Muhammad attributes her recovery to that prayer, to his cousin's intervention. And so he reaches back out to his cousin. He asks him to connect him with a Christian preacher in Istanbul so that he can explore further. And his cousin makes that connection. And over the course of time, Muhammad becomes convinced that Christianity is, in fact, true. He says that reading the Bible made him calmer than reading the Quran. He says that the churches he attended made him feel more welcome than the neighborhood mosques. And in his personal view, Christian prayers were more generous than Muslim ones. This was Muhammad's experience. Well, Kingsley goes on in his article to make the observation that towards the that Mr. Muhammad and his wife, perhaps um, it was their dreams as well that sealed their conversion for him. And he shares about a dream that both Muhammad had and Muhammad's wife. His wife had a dream of a biblical figure who used heavenly powers to divide the waters of the sea. And that dream encouraged her. It brought comfort to her. And Muhammad interpreted that dream to be from Jesus. Well, Muhammad also had a dream. His dream was that Jesus had given him some chickpeas. But again, the result of that dream in Muhammad was consolation. He knew that that was Jesus caring for him. The two of them felt love. And he says that there's a big gap between the God I used to worship and the one I worship now. We used to worship in fear, and now everything has changed. Now, there are a variety of different people that played a part in Muhammad's story of coming to faith. His cousin, who first introduced him to Islam, later introduced him to Christianity. There's this friend who played a part in his, in his journey, inviting him to come and join this terrorist group. And then there's this preacher who he conversed with. So each one of these different people played an important role in Mr. Muhammad's journey and his eventual conversion. There are human fingerprints all over this story. And yet, as Kingsley writes this article, over and over again in the course of this article, he reflects that Mr. Muhammad's story makes no sense. It makes no sense. It doesn't. Unless Kingsley is missing something as he's writing this article. And I think that he is missing something very important in Muhammad's story. There is something critical at play in his story that is being overlooked. So keep that in mind. And now I'm going to read our passage for us. This comes from John chapter 1. And this is immediately following um, John the Baptist baptizing Jesus in the Jordan River. I'm picking up in verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him. And said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me 
because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me. The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went, and they saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. Lord, I ask that you would speak to us this morning. It is difficult for many of us to talk about our faith, to talk about you with people who hold different views. And yet, Lord, we know how important it is for people to have an opportunity to experience relationship with you. So how do we get over this hurdle? Lord, this morning as we reflect on these different stories of other people's experience with you, we pray that you would open our eyes to some of the reasons why it is challenging and help us move to a place of maybe freedom from that, to be able to be more bold and simply inviting others to come and see. In Jesus' name, amen. Alistair, would you come and be my buddy for a moment? We are going to do a little, a little science today. How many of you have ever made slime? All right. We make a lot of slime in our households. I just discovered that you can buy Elmer's glue in jugs this big. Probably need to invest. Elmer's glue. Chief ingredient in slime. Water. Chief ingredient in slime. Food coloring. Alistair, you have two choices this morning. You can either make red or green. You're going to go with red. All right. This is some completed slime so that you can see what slime should look like. Amelia tells me that this is really good slime. So here you go. Oh, Usually, a really good slime can kind of stretch indefinitely. Here's some slime. All right, Alistair, what I have here is one tablespoon of Elmer's glue. I would like you to make some slime using only Elmer's glue, food coloring, and water. Can you go ahead and do that for me? Here, I'll open this. So there's a tablespoon of glue. Usually it's like equal parts, right? Glue to water. So you want to go ahead and put a tablespoon of water in there? So just, yeah, we'll do like this. 
All right, you're going to put some food coloring in there. Squeeze a lot if you want it dark. All right, go ahead and mix that up and make some slime. Any predictions? What's going to happen? Watery glue. Well, that's so weird because those are the chief ingredients of slime, right? <laughs> What's that? What is the not chief ingredient? Oh, the not. We're missing a not chief ingredient. <laughs> Alistair, is there something missing from this? I mean, that. Why doesn't that look like this? Slime what are we missing? Slime activator. Can you see that louder? Slime activator. <laughs> we are missing the slime activator. So you can have all the glue you want, all the water you want, all the food coloring that you want, but unless you add an activator, it's just watery glue. All right. That is a very important thing to notice in making slime. Why don't you go ahead? I don't want this to explode everywhere. Why don't you go ahead and keep stirring? I'm going to put a little bit of slime activator in there. Oh, something's starting to happen. Keep, keep mixing. All right, why don't you lift that up now? Pull that out. Do you guys see that? All right. We're not going to wait for perfection here, but if we kept stirring and added a little bit more activator, we would get some legit slime. So if there are any kids here that want to come and complete this process afterwards, you can do that. I'll give you the legit slime. Thank you, Alistair. All right. So keep that in mind. An activator is necessary to form slime. All right. Now, I am going to connect that. In the story that we just heard, we have several encounters with Jesus. The first encounter that we witness is between John the Baptist and Jesus. Now remember, John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin. You would think that they knew one another. And yet, at the beginning of this passage, John says, I didn't know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And John recounts his experience of baptizing Jesus in the river and a dove coming down from heaven. The Holy Spirit descends from heaven. And it's at that moment that things become clear for John. Yes, John knew that this was his cousin. But John was not certain that Jesus was all of the things that he has been told he was. This was the kid that probably had slugged him as a kid gotten dirt in his eyes. Is he really the Messiah? Is he really the Lamb of God? I'm not so sure. He carries these questions around with him, perhaps, even as his calling as his prophet, preparing the way for the Lord, continues in his life. Until that moment when the activator comes into his life, the Holy Spirit is the activator that solidifies for John the Baptist the story that he has heard throughout his life. It didn't take a great theologian for John to come to faith. He had, he had learned all of the right things throughout his life. He had had all of the right conversations with the right people, and still he had these questions and these doubts. 
It is the Spirit who brings clarity for John. And that makes everything come together for him. It's the Holy Spirit that convicts him that Jesus is God's son. Now, if we go back to Mr. Muhammad's story, Mr. Kingsley, the author of the story, said his story just doesn't make sense. Jihadist to Christian, what a circuitous story. How in the world did he ever end up here? Well, you look at all the different people that he talked with, and it was a real crapshoot where he was going to end up. Except for the fact of what? The Holy Spirit was clearly at work in Mr. Muhammad's story throughout the course of his life. Working through his cousin, working through this preacher, yes. But it's the Holy Spirit in Muhammad's life that finally brings clarity through these dreams to convince Muhammad that Jesus is in fact the one that this preacher has told him he is, that his cousin has told him that he is. So the presence of the Holy Spirit, the working of the Holy Spirit, is significant in the process of conversion. Now if we go on to Andrew, the next day, John is standing somewhere with two of his followers, and Jesus walks past again. And John identifies him. Remember, he's had this Holy Spirit moment. He's convinced now that Jesus is who he says he is. And he says, look, the Lamb of God. And immediately, these two disciples of his turn and start following Jesus. Now, Jesus recognizes that he's being followed. He sees their interest. And rather than waiting, you know, waiting for them to catch up, he turns, he meets them halfway, and he asks them, what do you want? What do you want? What is it that you are seeking? And this is a great question for all of us to reflect on for ourselves, to reflect on with friends. What is it that you want? What are you seeking? Well, their response is, teacher, where are you staying? And I think that's a really weird question. Of all of the things to ask, where are you staying? And Jesus replies, come and see. Clearly, these men are seeking clarity about who Jesus is. And yet Jesus simply extends an invitation to them. Come and see. He doesn't initiate a conversation with them about the 12 spiritual laws. He doesn't ask them if they know where they're going after they die. He doesn't ask them to reflect on the state of their heart. He simply says, come and see. Come hang out with me for a while. A simple invitation. Well, this is helpful for me. Because it reminds me that I don't have to be a great theologian. I don't have to be a great apologist to engage with my friends, with my community, about faith. That all I have to do is invite them to come along. Come and see. Come live my life with me for a day and just see how it sits with you. Who are the spiritually curious people in your life who are waiting for an invitation, not a theological argument, but simply an invitation to come and see. 
So Andrew and this other disciple go with Jesus. And as a result of spending one day, one day with him, Andrew is convinced that Jesus is who he says he is. He is the Messiah. He is the Lamb of God. If we were to go back through this passage and underline all of the titles of Jesus, this passage is packed with clarity on who Jesus is that unfolds for these people as they spend time with Jesus. Andrew is convinced after just a few hours with Jesus. And the first thing that he does is he runs off to find his brother, Simon. And he says to him, we have found the Messiah. We have found the Christ. There's so much packed into these words for a Jew at that time. And he brings Simon back to Jesus. He says, come and see, Simon. Come and see. He doesn't try to convince him. He doesn't try to lay out all the arguments. Just come and see. Andrew is always bringing others to Jesus throughout the Gospel of John because his life has been changed by this very simple invitation from Jesus to come and see. And so he turns around and he extends that invitation every opportunity that he gets to the people in his world, his brother, others that he encounters. Come and see. This invitation just flows out of him. There's a word here, too, for those of us who doubt. And I know that a lot of us have doubts. And that's that in the midst of your doubts, are you spending time hanging out with Jesus? Or are you holding him at arm's distance? Andrew's story suggests that spending time with Jesus is the best possible way to resolve those doubts and those questions. Spending time with him. Just one day is all that it took for Andrew. And so if you are doubting, maybe consider setting aside a little bit more time, not less time, hanging out with Jesus for a while and just see if it helps you clarify your thoughts. What would it look like for us to spend a little bit of time with Jesus this week? Well, the last encounter that we see is between Peter or between Jesus and Simon, Andrew's brother. And it says that Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will now be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. Now the word here for the way that Jesus looks at Simon is a word that's not simply gazing at him. When Jesus looks at Peter, he sees to Peter's heart. He doesn't just see the exterior. He sees what's going on inside. Michelangelo was once asked what he was doing as he was chipping away at a piece of rock. And Michelangelo's response was, I am releasing the angel imprisoned inside this marble. Well, Jesus in this encounter doesn't just see Peter as he is then. He sees the angel that can emerge. He sees who Peter can become as a result of relationship with him. But what's important here is that Jesus does not ask for Peter to be at that point before he can enter into relationship with him, does he? He claims Peter as his own. He gives him a new name as a poor fisherman from Galilee. 
He welcomes him as he is and then shapes him through the course of relationship with him. And the same is true for you and me. The same is true for the people that we are struggling to, should we invite them to come with us to church? Should we have that conversation with them? Peter's story here should help us to relax a bit. Because it's okay if we don't look like a Christian yet. It's okay if those people that we are considering talking to about our faith don't look like a Christian yet. Why should they? They don't need to have it all together. We don't need to have it all together in order to be in a relationship with Jesus. Belong, then believe, then become is the example that I see in this passage, the way that Jesus functioned. The becoming happens through relationship with him. So I see so many different things wrapped up in this passage for us anxious evangelists. This passage reminds us that bringing our loved ones into relationship with Jesus is not all up to us, all right? There is an activator that is the Holy Spirit that is at work in the life of every single person on the face of this globe, wooing them. And yet Andrew's story reminds us that we have a role to play. We do have a role to play. But our role is simply to invite. Come and see. Come and see. You have doubts? Great. Come and see. You think that we're crazy? Well, why don't you come and see? Maybe you'll change your mind. Simon's encounter with Jesus, the lowly fisherman at the beginning, reminds us that no matter how rebellious, how rough around the edges, how far gone we are, or our friends are, there is no one that Jesus would not welcome with open arms. No one. He welcomed Muhammad with open arms, jihadist turned Bible study leader. He desires to do that for all of us. So who is the spiritually curious person in your life that is waiting for a simple invitation? Not a theological debate, an invitation. And what could you invite them to? Maybe it's Sunday morning worship. Maybe it's to dinner with you and another friend who shares your faith. Maybe to a community group. Maybe to a walk around Green Lake. There is someone who is waiting for an invitation from you. And for the doubters in the room, each of these stories suggest that spending time with Jesus is the best way to work through those doubts. That is counterintuitive to us. When we begin to doubt, our first impulse is to push away. Try drawing close to Jesus for a bit and just see if that helps bring clarity in your doubts. We're going to come to the table now. And I say this most weeks, I think, but how fitting that... At the end of this conversation about encounter with Jesus, we have the chance to have an encounter with Jesus. But that's one of the things that I love about the table is that we need to be reminded, I think. I need to be reminded every week. We do this every week because we can't last a month before we have the chance to come and be reminded that Christ is with us. Jesus loves 
us. <laughs> That's what this table says to us. If you were to invite a friend here, that would be what was communicated to your friends, I hope, as they are invited to this table. This is Christ's love for us, Christ's presence with us. So let's take a moment to pray as we prepare to encounter Jesus.